You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 35 West Shelton Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. Um, so before we go on, uh, I want to just kind of recap where we've been this summer. In these Sunday meetings, we have spent time each week um, delving into stories of women in Scripture who maybe we don't even have much detail about, but looking for um, who they are and where they are in the story of God relating to humanity. Women have often been, because of patriarchy, because of um, other forms of oppression, have been sidelined both in Scripture sometimes even in translations of scripture over the years, and certainly even today. Um, So we're looking at these stories both to encourage us, encourage our hearts um, with a fuller picture of God's story in relating to all of us, and also an attempt to find ourselves in the story too, right now in what we face each day. So um, I want to welcome Corinne today. She is going to be sharing um, a story from John 4 of the woman at the well. And um, I'm grateful. I just want to say a word about Corinne before she comes up. Corinne serves in lots of different ways in the church. Um, She's a cell leader. She's also um, a cell leader coordinator, which means she supports other cell leaders in the church and keeps us connected with um, cells across all of our congregations. And uh, she also serves on the Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter team. So um, it's a gift to have you share a talk with us today. Corinne, thanks. Come on up. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Corinne. Thanks for that introduction, Julie. Can everybody hear me? Am I like, close enough to the mic? If you can't hear me, just like wave at me and I'll, I'll lean in. Um, it's good to see everyone. I think I know most everyone here, but if I haven't had, we have, if we have not had a chance to meet, um, I'm Corinne. I use she, her pronouns. I've been around Circle of Hope almost five years in, ago um, now since I uh, moved to Philadelphia and have been part of this community. And um, yeah, I'm grateful to be part of it, grateful to be able to share with you today. So today I want to invite you on a bit of an interpretive journey with the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4. For those who've been around churches for a while, this may be a familiar story to you. Um, And if not, that's okay too, because we're going to get the chance to read through it together and look at it together to refresh all of our memories anyhow. But it was a pretty familiar story to me. And um, I wanted to bring it today because as I have been digging into, like listening to voices that are outside of the dominant white male patriarchy, etc. All the isms, culture, right? Like trying to listen to people from the margins interpreting scripture. Um, I encountered a way of reading this passage, like an interpretation of this passage through a womanist lens that was pretty new to me and that was exciting. And so I hope that we can kind of delve into that together. 
and maybe see some new things together. Maybe God has something new to say to us in it. So before, well, I guess I'll say part of what we're going to be looking at in, in like this reading is seeing how like a, a biased lens of whiteness and patriarchy has colored um, or, or caused us to misinterpret the text. But I, I was relating that to my own experience as a woman, albeit a white woman, but as a woman in... Um, sort of church spaces, and so relating to that experience. I just wanted to share some stories about that to get us started. So I'll start with a story about 15 years ago or so. Um, I was a young, married woman, like early 20s. I didn't have kids yet, and I had just, Aaron and I, my husband Aaron and I, had just moved to California and started, I had just started a Master of Divinity program at Fuller Seminary, which is like a progressive-ish wing of the evangelical tradition, um, which is like a tradition that I hadn't grown up with. So it was a little bit new to me, and I was kind of navigating that in, for like a first time. And so my first semester, um, first quarter, they call them quarters, but I'm going to say semester because that's confusing. So the first semester in, in seminary, I took what was like the Greek intensive class. So basically, you're supposed to, in this program, take three semesters of Greek, um, but you had the option to take them all at once and have that be the only class you take. So I decided, for whatever reason, that was what I was going to start with. And there were actually a lot of other people in this program with me who were starting out in the same way. And so it was in this Greek class. You spend all your time with this same cohort of people because it's the only class you're taking. And a lot of other new students in the class as well. And in this program, it was like... Although they, the school affirms women in ministry, it was still like definitely more men than women in this particular program that was really geared for people who were like going to go on to be pastors. So way more men than women. Um, and I'm in this class. I remember where I was sitting, right? There was one woman sitting to my left and then two other guys to my right and then a row of like three or four guys behind me. And I was, um, mind you, like married, just like most of them were married too, but trying to make friends, right? There, there's like a lot of camaraderie happening in this class. And um, these guys like seemed really cool. They seemed funny. They were like our neighbors. And I remember like trying to kind of get in on this like friendship circle of new students that was forming like literally around me. And just feeling like, oh, I'm like, I can't, I can't like quite get into this like thing that's happening. Um, like there were study parties that happened at one of my like close neighbor's house after class, like all the time that I was like not once invited to. And I would like study alone in the courtyard of, uh, on campus, which was lovely, but like, it's interesting looking back, because even as I'm telling the story, it's so subtle, which is how these things tend to happen, that it's easy to dismiss like what's happening, but also like trusting myself that like absolutely I was being excluded from this little clique of friends that were forming because I was a woman. And even getting to know like evangelical church culture a little bit more 
Um, probably I was like viewed as some sort of a threat to these guys' marriages, right? If I were included in the study groups or the hangout. Um, and experiences like that came up a lot at the church that I worked at out there as well. So this is not Circle of Hope, this is a church out in California, but um, there was a pastor that I worked under that we had all of, um, like, I was working at the church and we would have weekly meetings. And all of our weekly meetings, he said, like, he would be more comfortable if the weekly meetings were all, like, in a public place. So we met in the Target Starbucks seating area for all of the meetings. And, like, he explicitly said, because he thought it was inappropriate for us to like be meeting one-on-one -on -one unless it was in a public place. And in other places, he had like talked about the Billy Graham rule. All right, so my evangelical church kids, who knows what that is? Anybody? <laughs> Look at all these hands. I had no idea. I grew up like Presbyterian. Anyway, I was like, what is the Billy Graham rule, right? The Billy Graham <laughs> rule in, in evangelical church culture is a rule that men should avoid spending time alone with women to whom they are not married. So like we can unpack the layers of patriarchy and homophobia and all the things, right, in this, in this rule. But like the pastor that I was working for, that's why we met at Target in the seating area because like couldn't be trusted to be alone. Um, there was the time I gave a talk at that church and that same pastor talked to me afterwards about how my dress was too short. That was super shaming and felt terrible. And like, guys, it wasn't scandalous at all. It was like probably what I have on today. Um, and even outside of leadership, like there was a time that I gave a talk and one of the older white men in the congregation came up to me and was like, I just love when you speak because you are so pretty up there. Like, I could look at you all day. You're just so beautiful. Like, did you, how is this appropriate? Did you hear anything I said? Like, anyway, super awkward. I could go on. There was like the guy who left the church because he didn't believe women should be in speaking from up front or whatever and like took me out to lunch to tell me about why he was leaving the church because he thought it was inappropriate that I was leading. <clears throat> Anyhow, so lots of stories. And even though like this wasn't the entirety of my experience, right? I wouldn't have stuck around if that was the only thing I was encountering. There were plenty of people who loved me and affirmed me and valued me in, in ways that like made me stick around. But at the same time, those little incidents were just part of life um, within this culture of like evangelical church ministry stuff. And I think that that's particularly relevant as we're looking at like how scriptures have been interpreted for us. Cause really it's the same folks with the same theological education who are writing the textbooks often and like, telling us how to read people in scripture um, like the Samaritan woman at the well and like plenty of other people as we've been talking about over the summer, women, and just ways of interpretation. So like, I think it's important for us to work to like uncover what those biases are and to listen from the margins, even as we're reading the texts. Um, so those are experiences that I had as a white woman, but I also want to name that 
um, women of color have experiences that have layers of not just sexism, but also racism. And we could like go through this for um, homophobia and just all of the ways that our identities like in that like w in change how we are read and and how we are interpreted by the people around us and so today I'm drawing a lot from the work of um, a womanist womanist theologian love Seacrest who is actually um, a professor that I got to study with at Fuller and so she talks about um, racialized and gendered stereotypes. And so just to give us like kind of a brief overview of, of a couple that are relevant to how we're going to look at the text today. She talks about the influence of Victorian culture in our own culture and how that has led to the trope of the helpless, passive, pure white woman in American culture which is, serves as like a counterpart to the trope of the authoritative, strong, competent white man. And then in contrast to that, uh, black women are often stereotyped in various ways, and she goes through and lists a few of them. One is with Jezebel imagery that depicts black women as sensual, foreign, and dangerous. Um, sometimes with mammy imagery of an enslaved black woman with this imagery of um, her being strong, obese, nurturing, unattractive, and very loyal to whites. And that she is a foil for the stereotype of the passive, um, or sorry, a foil for the stereotype of, for, sorry, let me back up. So a third stereotype is the angry black woman who serves as a foil for the stereotype of the helpless, passive white woman. And we could like be super interesting to go through and um, just look at all these different identities, like it impacts different stereotypes, impact Asian women, impact Latina women and other cultures and identities as well. So kind of with all this framework in mind, I want us to read through um, the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters at the well in John 4. Um, let's read it out loud together. It's a little long, so I'll let somebody else read it to get another voice in the room. Um, but if you like reading out loud, we can pass you a mic. It's, it's going to be up on the overhead here. The whole thing or part of it? Just give us the whole thing. Cool. Unless you want to pass the mic off because you're tired, that's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Je Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman said, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. There is more. It's Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you the living water. Hmm. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep, so where would you like to get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this or he gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsting again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You have had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. Dun, dun, dun. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Paragraph. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship in what, uh, what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming and the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Okay, that's it. I'm passing the mic. Go for that's it. That's the last slide. One more. Oh, what? <laughs> Keep going? Yeah, one more right. slide. <laughs> Just then, Jesus... I was thinking, is there three more slides here? Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. <gasps> Didn't he know that rule? Sorry. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified, he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritan came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this, is the, this one truly is the Savior of the world. Thanks, Sarah. Woo. <laughs> so um, thanks for reading that whole thing. I know it's a long story, but I wanted us to get kind of the whole picture of what's going on in this exchange. So if you've been around church a little while, you've probably heard a sermon or two on this passage. 
Um, and maybe like me, you've heard a lot of speculation about this sort of curious exchange between Jesus and the woman about her marital status. And I do wonder kind of like what Jesus is doing in that, in that interaction. Like it seems, it seems a little disjointed. Like they meet, they're talking about him wanting a drink of water. He seems to be letting her in on like little insider knowledge about his identity. He says that he can provide living water that bubbles up to eternal life. And then like in this strange turn of direction, all of a sudden they're like having this back and forth about like her marital history and how many husbands she's had and all of that. So it's a, it's a little odd. Like you do kind of wonder, <clears throat> Jesus, what are, you, what are you doing with that? What's going on there? I've heard sermons that, that go from there and focus like a whole lot on the woman's sexual history and her status in the community with a line of questioning that sort of goes like, is she alone there at noon in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day by herself because she's rejected by her community? Like, do the other women all gossip about her and so she has to go by herself? Um, and like, what circumstances led her to be married so many times and living with a man who's not her husband? And is Jesus naming all those things like so she can confess her sins to him or so that she'll repent? Um, and when Jesus asks her to go call her husband and she's like, I don't have a husband, is that because she's like trying to dodge the question? Um, is she like trying to hide the truth from him, right? Like this kind of whole line of questioning, at least for me, is one that I've often heard go along with this passage. And I wanted to explore a different line of interpretation today and largely drawing from womanist scholar. Did I say what womanism is? Womanism is... Um, centering the experience and the, like theological interpretation of black women and their lived experience. And Love Seacrest is a, is a black woman, a womanist scholar on biblical interpretation. So she just wrote this new book called Race and Rhyme, rereading the New Testament. It's really great. And so um, I'm like drawing on her interpretation of this passage here. So she suggests that this line of interpretation um, really comes a lot out of racism and patriarchy and that many of the interpreters approach this story with like what she calls sex on the brain and that when you start going down that road it's very um, very common for interpreters to draw very negative conclusions about this woman and she notes that this woman is um, not just a woman, but also from a different ethnic group than Jesus' own ethnic group, one that has had longstanding conflict with, with Jesus' ethnic group. And then she goes on to, to say that, um, argue pretty convincingly, that it is because of the, the interpreter's own biases and stereotypes against foreign women that they arrive at such negative conclusions about her. So for example, we're gonna look at like a few places that shows up. For example, the detail about this woman being there at noon, alone in the heat of the day, I have heard that interpreted as evidence that she's like a social outcast in her community. But if that were the case, why does everyone eagerly listen to her testimony about Jesus when she goes back to the town? She has like influence in her community they listen to her and they listen to Jesus because of her testimony. 
Um, a much better explanation is probably that the author is making a contrast between her story and the story of Nicodemus that comes in the chapter before her. Because in that story, um, as that story goes, that one is set in the middle of the night. And the author of the Gospel of John really likes to play with this use of imagery of light and darkness as a metaphor for whether people are able to recognize who Jesus is. And so having this story take place in like the brightest light of day is imagery that suggests that she is seeing something about him, recognizing something in him that Nicodemus didn't see. Um, she recognizes him to be a prophet and the Messiah in a, in a way that Nicodemus didn't get just in the chapter before. And then there's the whole exchange about her marital history. Um, I do think it's worth pointing out that in that culture, a woman didn't have the right to divorce a man. A man only had the right to divorce a woman. And while there are like plenty of explanations of her current living situation, regardless of all that, this is a person who has very likely been through a tremendous amount of hardship. She's probably been either widowed or rejected five times, and her current relationship status would leave her very vulnerable. And so I want to suggest that maybe Jesus isn't bringing this into the conversation as a way to like call her out or to shame her, but actually perhaps he is saying it with like softness in his voice and a kind gaze in his eyes that lets her know that he really sees her and he knows what she's had to endure and how she's had to survive it. After all, Jesus doesn't tell her to go and sin no more like he does later in the woman caught in adultery, who he also doesn't condemn, incidentally. But there's not even any discussion of sin here. And um, the woman's response is, sir, I can tell that you're a prophet, right? Like she doesn't miss a beat. She seems to be leaning into the safety of this conversation with Jesus. Another womanist scholar, Lynn St. Clair Darden, puts it this way, that um, the Samaritan is totally unconcerned with what Jesus revealed to her about her life. And in fact, it's that story that she goes and shares with everyone when she goes back to the village in excitement to like tell them about this interaction. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And they listen, and, and there's like trust there with her and her community and trust there with her and Jesus. And so I think it seems very unlikely that Jesus is like judging her or, can, or um, disapproving of her in this exchange. There's also um, this really fascinating line of interpretation that Dr. Seacrest talks about um, that I want to share because it was super striking to me. So she says that interpreters have often noted a sort of motif or like a type scene in scripture where this narrative is set. Um, and like there, there are different type scenes that are supposed to give you a clue about where the story arc is going based on the setting or how the story is told. So to like see what that would look like in our context, we'll play a little game. I'll give you the opening line of a story and you tell me what kind of story it's going to be. So a guy walks into a bar. What kind of story is that going to be? Right, it's a joke. Once upon a time fairy tale. That's right. 
Here's one that um, Aaron wanted me to share. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> right, Star Wars. The, these things like cue you to set you up for the kind of story you're about to hear. Okay, how about this one? In the Bible, a messenger meets a woman at a well in the desert and one offers the other a drink of water. So that's a betrothal scene. <clears throat> They're setting you up in the way the story is set and told that this is probably going to be a betrothal scene. Um, it draws on the stories of the matriarchs and the patriarchs, particularly on the first one that goes this way of Rebecca's betrothal to Isaac. A messenger is sent to another land to find a suitable bride to bring back home to her groom, to the groom. Next, the messenger meets a woman at a well, and one of them draws water from it, and then God reveals to the messenger that this is the person that God has chosen. The woman rushes home to tell her family of the stranger's arrival, and then a betrothal takes place. So um, if we compare this story to the story of Rebecca and Isaac's betrothal scene that like the storyteller is probably thinking will recognize so Jesus here would be the messenger, just like um, Abraham was sent a messenger <clears throat> to find a wife for his son. Jesus is the messenger here because Jesus understands himself to be sent by God, to be doing God's will. Um, but then there's some, and, and then like asking for a drink of water at the well is also all part of how that story usually goes, or it went in this story. Um, but in Rebecca and Isaac's story, the mission in, in the Old Testament there, in the Hebrew scriptures there, the, the mission is to find a bride within the same family line as the groom. But here, Jesus is actually deliberately crossing ethnic boundaries and daring to consider a suitable, quote-unquote, bride for someone, um, in someone who his people have been enemies of, who've, have a, who've had a long-standing conflict of, and yet this doesn't dissuade Jesus from, from recognizing her um, and seeing her as somebody that is a suitable bride, if we're going to go with this imagery. It's also interesting that in the Rebecca and Isaac story, there's specific mention made of Rebecca's virginity, but here... In Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman, her marital history is not a barrier to her worthiness as a bride of God. Jesus sees her. She recognizes him as a prophet. And then Jesus goes on to reveal his identity to her in a way that he hasn't revealed to his disciples or he hasn't revealed to anyone else yet in the story. There's like this deep trust that is, that is being formed in this interaction. He invites her into this deep level of partnership. Um, the marriage here, of course, is symbolic, but the love, uh, Dr. Seacrest points out that there are like spiritual children come for this, from this union because this Samaritan woman tells her whole town the testimony and it says many people um, recognize Jesus then as the savior of the world because of her testimony. So it's really interesting, not only that this is set up as a betrothal scene, but also that um, if maybe you've heard that before, but that was new to me. And it kind of begs the question, why has that not been a more common interpretation? 
Um, she said that lots of interpreters have recognized the betrothal scene, but then dismissed that as a possibility because of the woman's marital status. But she wonders, Dr. Seacrest in her work here, wonders if um, they've actually missed the interpretation because of their own biases against a woman who they consider foreign and immoral. They've judged her as immoral, they've judged her as an outcast in the community, but that's like not really in the text. Um, but all these biases play out in the reading of it when, when her story is misread through the lens of white patriarchy and the um, biases that that gives us as a lens to view a woman of, um, who would be considered of a different ethnicity, right, from Jesus' own group. So I really loved this story before, but love it on like a way deeper level after reading it through that interpretation. Because I think for me, it helps me to feel like Jesus sees me and values me as a woman in ways that are um, often missed, particularly in Christian spaces. Um, and I, I don't know, I just find it really profound and really beautiful and, and um, yeah, very beautiful to read it in that way. Jesus is intentionally transgressing rules about Jews and Samaritans and about men talking to women when he strikes up a conversation with her. He does not see her body as a liability. He does not have any interest in any sort of a Billy Graham rule, even though his disciples later are scandalized that he's talking to her. He, that doesn't deter him at all. He sees her worthy to engage in theological discussion with, um, as much so as any of the men around him, if not more. He does not stereotype her as a foreign Jezebel. He doesn't shame her because of her marital history. He sees her, he sees her resilience in the face of what she has been through and what she's survived, and he, he judges her to be a worthy bride for God and gives her the dignity of a matriarch like Rebecca, the mother of a new people who will believe because of her testimony about him. She's a worthy partner for mission, and he sends her to share the gospel. So I don't know, I don't think we have a ton of time for talk back, but if anybody has something that's really resonating with them, if you heard something new and, and that's impacting you, I'd love to hear any feedback. Julie is going to bring the mic around. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.